Obviously, you're not a college football fan, bro. Wow. Yeah. I, no, no. I have seen. They, they do throw a pretty good, pretty good tailgate. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us in the new year. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osaski, broadcasting from the center of Europe here in Vienna, Austria. Good to be back on the mic here in the new year, our first uh, sort of newer show. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement, who's over there in Toronto. David, sir, how's it going here on Consumer Choice Radio? Oh, it's going all right. Yeah, it's going all right. Um, no major complaints um, other than the vaccine rollout seems to be a little slow, uh, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. Um, yeah, so yeah, no no real complaints. Things are things are going pretty good. And you, of course, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. We broadcast every single Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, great to be part of the local programming of the Big Talker. Uh, they're really upping their game uh, here in the beginning of the year. There are now, I believe, 10 programs that are produced locally that go out on the air that aren't the nationally syndicated shows like Dave Ramsey, Sean Hannity, all these other guys. Uh, we've got the local kids uh, coming in, um, kids and older gentlemen and ladies. So there's a good group. So you can always listen to some of our previous interviews. Uh, David and I wrapped up a uh, a good year. Uh, hell of a year. Um, really did an amazing job from the get-go starting off in January, and we were able to record 52 episodes in the last year. Uh, really eventful year covering everything uh, from uh, starting out in the mountains of Davos, Switzerland, and then uh, traveling up and down covering everything that happened throughout the summer months, uh, all of the Carol Baskins virus madness, and uh, now we're starting anew in uh, 2021, David. Mm-hmm. And just when you thought, you know, the clock strikes midnight, the year rolls over to 2021, you're thinking, okay, maybe things are going to calm down a little bit. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, this week, um, they have done the, the opposite of calm down a little bit. Um, and I mean, how can we not talk about what's happened in D.C. and the the storming of the Capitol and uh, a woman being shot and just, uh, I mean, honestly, and I know that news anchors everywhere have kind of said this. It did feel like you were watching something from some third world dictatorship where they were trying to overthrow the government and break windows and take back the, take back the parliament. Um, so yeah, 2021 is uh, not off to a great start. Um, which is super depressing considering um, we're comparing it to 2020, which was brutal. Yeah, well, I do have to say for the week before we get into that, uh, David, you did celebrate a birthday. So uh, ha- I did. happy birthday. Yes. I think you're, yeah. you're hitting 3-0 Thank territory. You. Uh, yeah, I'm now 31, which I think means I'm officially old. <sighs> Welcome to the game. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, great uh, for, to have you celebrate your birthday, even though you had to pretty much do it uh you know sequestered there in the snow on your own but hey man <laughs> new reality yeah That's, uh... make the most yeah make the most of it um 
it was a golf themed birthday. So I have a little chip and putt thing in the house now with a net and some softer golf balls so that they don't break anything. So it was about as good as it could go. Oh, soft golf balls. I, I think that's what the cheaters use in the masters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So David, you mentioned uh, the storming of the U S Capitol. Uh, this happened this week. It was on Wednesday into the night. Uh, I was playing it along. I'm actually convinced my my wife to tune into YouTube Live so we could see this. Uh, it, yeah, it did feel like we were watching Jack Ryan season two or Designated Survivor season one or, I mean, just name any television show that has been rather dystopian and a political thriller. And that's uh, basically what we had yesterday. That's what it felt like. It was insane. Yeah, um, just wild stuff. Um, I mean, never, never could you really, never could you really have predicted that that would have happened on two fronts. And uh, so one, obviously, Capitol Police did not take this seriously in the beginning, um, because they certainly didn't meet these protesters with the same force or resistance as they did um, other protesters throughout the summer. Um, they kind of had to get their stuff together after the fact and then get the riot gear on. They weren't there preemptively waiting. Um, but two, it's also strange how this is even possible that like a bunch of people could just storm the Capitol. You you would think that, I think the, the funny tweet out there was uh, that the US has like a trillion dollar defense budget and a, a bunch of uh, a bunch of Trump supporters with flagpoles can, can get into the building it's like wait a second uh how does that work yeah um, that was that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense I will say maybe the Capitol Hill police will at some point be vindicated I have seen a couple of videos where they were trying to hold off the lines and they were just they're just outnumbered just the sheer numbers of people i mean you had let's say 10 of the capitol hill police and you know they've got their uh their guns they've got their uh, their armor their flak jackets and everything else and they're trying to hold back the bear the barricade hold back the barricades but people just broke through and it was too much uh definitely not an adequate job uh surely once you know trump was up there and the whole context of this as many of you know and if you've been listening to talk radio you know that the <laughs> this has been covered extensively but there's the stop the steal rally that trump gave there in the afternoon evening time uh there in washington dc and basically sicked the crowd on the congress that was in the process of ratifying the electoral uh, college votes so I did get up early enough uh, in the morning European time that I was able to see that final vote uh, tally, uh, tally cast and everything was confirmed. I think it was like at 3.41 a.m. Washington time uh, that everything was finally done. But man, what an insane time. There's a lot that can be said about this, uh, something that I wrote very quickly on our website. Uh, just, you know, this is definitely not the behavior that you want in a liberal democracy. It's something that was egged on by Trump. And there's many reasons that we've criticized Trump or praised Trump in the past, certainly when it comes to policy. But this is way beyond policy. This is way beyond, you know, your typical minutia and legislation. This is actually storming one of the seats of government. And, you know, this is something that cannot be excused. 
I know that people have been very forceful, but I think we should be forceful. And if they're going to do anything right now, I mean, I guess the only harm that's come to Trump in the last uh, couple of hours there has been the locking of his Twitter and Facebook account. But this is actually a 25th Amendment situation. This is a impeachment and removal quickly uh, situation. I don't know. I haven't read uh, the stories uh, yet that that is happening at a quick pace, but something they got to consider because this is we just have to send a message. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people watching this around the world that are, are probably getting the wrong idea about what can happen in a liberal democracy. Yeah, I mean, one of the jokes was that like Iran and Al Qaeda are looking at this and going, wait, that's all it took? <laughs> That's all it took to take the Capitol. What? Um, so on the Twenty Fifth Amendment, I I don't know what the the inner workings are in terms of how that process actually works, but I do think from if I kind of remove myself from what I personally think would be the right thing to do, I think optically, um, anyone who wants to have a, a future in presidential politics for the Republicans should probably jump on that, um, jump on that, that wagon now um, and really kind of put the final nail in the coffin of distancing themselves from Trump. I think that that's the way to go. I think it's pretty shameful that senators Cruz and Hawley um, in not so much now, but in the lead up to everything very much seem to embrace or egg on um, the protesters. Um, and I think they're probably going to pay a pretty steep price for that. Um, but what I would love to see is, is, you know what I would, I would love to see Mike Pence to finally, um, kind of step up to who Mike Pence was always supposed to be, which is a pretty honorable guy. I disagree with him about a lot of things, but he's always been a, a pretty honorable, uh, person despite those policy disagreements now would be the time for him to kind of rally the troops inside cabinet and say okay this is enough like this show has to end and we have to send a message that um, you can't you can't be calling on people to do this sort of crazy um, violence in in the capital and things like that so I mean I'm not going to hold my breath because I think a lot of people have tied their tied themselves to the Trump train uh, for too long. Uh, maybe it's it's too hard to get off, um, but I sure would love to see it. Well, choo choo. Um, I did see in the last yeah. moments when they were tallying up the votes. Uh, one of the last states is Wisconsin, and there was a lot of talk by the senators that they were going to try to reject the counting of the electoral votes from that state, essentially saying that the votes were not gotten in a uh, legitimate manner. And and look, I'll admit, I the arguments that were put on the House and Senate floor, and, you know, of course, I'm a nerd that I listen to a lot of this, uh, were not arguments that were really um, brought up by any of the Trump lawsuits, as far as I know. And their argument was that, well, actually, state legislators are supposed to set, to set the law when it comes to elections. But many of, of what the state legislators put out there were either changed or struck down by the courts. So it's actually the courts that had changed the electoral law and not the uh, different state legislators, which is interesting. I've never heard that argument. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong and I just haven't been reading the right stuff. It makes sense. It's just super late in the game, guys. <laughs> it's just like... Well, and that's what... 
that's what Josh Hawley said. Is he's, he was contesting Pennsylvania, saying that they're not allowed to have mail-in voting under um, under strict rules, and that their legislator changed the rules in violation of uh, of this their the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's interpretation of their um, state constitution. Basically, the argument would be like on a technicality, you just invalidate the votes altogether. Uh, which, even if that even if that argument held, which I don't think it did, because I'm pretty sure the court reviewed the argument and threw out what Holly was saying anyway. But even if it did, it's a weird, it's a strange thing to say that like, it's not that there was fraud, it's not that there were irregularities. It's that there's this weird technicality and we want to disenfranchise an entire state um, on a weird technicality because it is advantageous to us in this election. It's, it's, it seems like pretty naked um, partisanship. Not that it never was, but it's it completely divorced itself from, well, we have to protect the integrity of the election. We have to protect the integrity of our voting systems. I mean, who doesn't disagree with those premises? That's a, of course, yeah, you don't want voter fraud. They look at that and then they're like, okay, well, there really aren't examples of it. And so they go with this weird, like loophole technicality argument. And it's like, well, the end goal, the end game for that would just be to disenfranchise an entire state. Um, and I don't know who would really celebrate that other than people who just nakedly want Trump to win at all costs. Yeah. Um, it was Weasley. I'm not sure if Sacra. Yeah. It, it just, yeah, it was, it was gross. And I mean, from my perspective, I hope this is the end of Josh Hawley because he's arguably one of the, the worst um, Republican senators uh, out there. Um, will it be the end of him? Who knows? Um, but selfishly i would love for this to be the end of his career and that that image of him with a fist kind of egging on the protesters as he walked into the capitol um is ultimately what does him in yeah well it's too bad he's got another four years in office <laughs> that's kind of a, a bad part of having these very long terms for senators um of course he can't be removed and there's a whole process for doing that i don't know if the, the colleagues in the senate will stoop to that level i don't know uh, kind of crazy. All of this, you know, was transpiring on our televisions, um, on you know different social media networks. Plenty of conspiracies thrown out there that a lot of the people were actually Antifa and and very badly doctored photos. Uh, I had many messages that people were sending to me saying like, "Look, this guy was at the Antifa rally." It's like, look, it it doesn't really matter. Um, this happened. Uh, Trump gave his rally. It's not necessarily. Uh, you know, the, lar the, the largest leap in the world to say that they're connected. And this is just bad. And well, it's, yeah. it's about rule of law. You know, this is not the Venezuelan parliament that people can, uh, or even we saw this in, in the eastern part of Ukraine when, you know, you had the separatists there, you know, storming the parliament. I mean, this is what happens in third yeah. world countries. Yeah. No, no, exactly. Can't have this. Exactly. And even if there were, uh, like, I mean, I don't doubt that, there were probably um, there were probably people who are just general. You're gonna have to bleep this out, but general heads who would will, will take any opportunity to raise hell and do damage and just seize the opportunity. 
But the thing is, is that the opportunity was there. It's not like this, this protest was completely manufactured by people who are not Trump supporters um, and who were not egged on by the president. And so the presence of some people who are, let's say, not true believers does not mean that the president did not egg this on and does not mean that the that the vast majority of people there were there because they genuinely thought that the election was stolen from the president and they were trying to stop the counting of the electoral college votes. Yeah, and there's a lot of this that, you know, a lot of you will be hearing about, and I'm sure on, on social media especially you'll see different uh, views represented. Uh, for me, what I'm seeing, because I like to analyze the different points of view, uh, it was pretty roundabout um, condemned from basically every side. I listened to a bit of talk radio uh, earlier in the week. It was much the same. Uh, TV, all the conservative websites and magazines, definitely everyone is condemning it. Uh, there really aren't too many people who are praising this. And the very pro-Trump people that I know uh, who you know might be in, in North Carolina or somewhere else kind of understand that this ain't how you do it and uh, definitely not a winner PR-wise. Uh, but David, I did want to back yeah. up. Let's go back to sort of not how all this all started, but at least uh, a, a kind of intro into uh, the craziness of the last two weeks. Uh, this is a phone call that w- took place between Trump. Uh, there was, who else was on here? He had his chief of staff. He had a couple of lawyers and the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensberger, uh, pronounced in the correct German way. And this is a, a phone call in which Trump was following up and he was trying to list all of the various uh, inaccuracies that happened with the Georgia elections, all the different accusations and allegations of fraud, uh, malfeasance, anything else. Uh, so here's a nice clip of, of Trump. And I, I wanted to get this. Uh, this is Trump at his best uh, when he starts getting a bit angry, talking about the governor, Brian Kemp and everything else. You just say you stick by, you, I mean, I've been watching you for, you know, you don't care about anything. Your numbers are right. But your numbers aren't right. They're really wrong. And they're really wrong, Brad. And, and I know this phone call is going nowhere other than, other than ultimately, you know, it, look, ultimately I win. Okay. Because but, Mr. Secretary, Mr. you guys President. are so wrong and you've treated this, you've treated the population of Georgia so badly you between you and your governor who wouldn't who was down at 21 he was down 21 points and like a schmuck i endorsed him and got he got elected but uh i will tell you he's a disaster and he'll never i can't imagine the people are so angry in georgia i can't imagine he's ever getting elected again i'll tell you that much right now but but why wouldn't you want to find the right answer brad instead of keep saying that the numbers are right there goes Trump for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, and and the, I mean, what's funny is the most objectionable part of that call is when he says we need to find 11,000 and change votes. Um, and people were kind of, the, the thing is, is that there have been so many moments in the Trump presidency where it's been like, well, is this the last straw? Is this the last straw? Like, is this when people were, will turn? And obviously the violence in D.C. is, I think, maybe the last straw where we're starting to see even the most passionate Trump supporters, maybe with the exception of Rudy Giuliani and his children, um, turn on the president. But even after this call with the with with 
officials in Georgia, um, there were still folks like Charlie Kirk from Turning Point who were saying like, what a disgrace it is to record that phone call and release it. And it's like, what you realize, he just asked for them to find votes so that he could win. <laughs> and that's your out, that's what you're outraged about. Um, so, I mean, it, it really begs the question of, does the, is, is this the end of, of MAGA? Uh, I know I asked this on Twitter um, because the Trump era, for me at least, and, and I mean, my political opinions are um, pretty apparent for anyone who's listened to our show uh, for long enough. But I mean, is this the end of mega? We've the Trump era is kind of now defined by losing the House, losing the Senate, losing the presidency. Um, yes they did a particularly good job of nominating conservative judges. If, if that's something that you care about, but um, it looks, it, it looks like make America great again has meant just a blue wave. Well, I would, I would argue that there is definitely some dismantling of the administrative state. There's no doubt there. Uh, there were increases in, in terms of state legislatures that do remain in Republican hands, which will make a difference for a lot mm -hmm. of local legislation but yeah surely on the national level ain't look good and this is a lot of stuff that you know our organization consumer choice center uh consumerchoiceradio.com you can find out more there a lot of the stuff that we're working on is going to be really impacted by this you know now that the senate yeah. has 50 democratic members and then that vote by uh the future vp kamala harris essentially means that they can pretty much get a lot of stuff passed a lot of stuff that we probably will not like uh, they'll have to contend with their own factions within the Democratic Party, but it's going to impact a lot of consumer stuff. I would hope for the positive uh, when it comes to repealing a lot of these tariffs and really bad policies that have been put into place the last couple of years, but more will be coming. You know, we have to look at taxes. We have to look at lockdowns. We have to look at AB5, California, anti-contractor laws being put on a federal level. There's going to be all kinds of this stuff that are going to be pushed through and Trump surely did no one any favors in, just in his last few weeks. I mean, it's it's kind of it's is almost as epic as if it's like that uh, flight attendant on that last flight who you know popped took the bottle of champagne, <laughs> popped open the slide, slid down, and just gave the middle finger. Yeah, that's essentially what happened here. No graceful <laughs> exit. No, you know, I'm going to do seed funding for Trump TV. It's going to be really hard to do any of that now. Well, yeah, and just think about, I mean, if you were someone who, let's say, is a Republican or wanted gridlock, you wanted the Republicans to win those two Georgia seats. I mean, maybe the president shouldn't have spent the last month talking about how rigged the election is. I mean, it's hard to get people out to vote when they think that the system is a fraud. And, and related uh, to that, so no related wonder. to that real quick, um, a friend of the show, Alan Holmes, uh, he's a political strategist, uh, lives in Atlanta. Yep. And one thing that he was doing is that he was put, I mean, he's obviously a Democrat, not a big Republican at all. <laughs> what they were doing is they were actually putting together mailers. Uh, he founded a new group to kind of target uh, both African-Americans and then Republicans uh, in rural Georgia. And the message was, yep. you know, uh, whoever it was, Kelly Loeffler, she's totally corrupt. She doesn't represent you. Uh, just stay home. Don't vote. And this kind of, um, we'll say, depression 
in the people who came out to vote in Georgia really meant that the Democrats, both of them, D's, won their elections and, and turned mm-hmm. over the Senate. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of that, and it seemed to have worked. And a lot of people stayed home. Yeah, well, it wasn't hard to, I mean, it, it's kind of like the perfect storm. You have two, two Senate candidates for the Republicans with huge unlikable uh, qualities, whether it's the insider trading thing or who they were campaigning with. I mean, they, they really didn't make life easy for themselves. Then you have a president who basically claims that the whole election is a farce. Um, so that discourages people from voting. And then you top that off is that he, he really did not campaign, um, that much for, um, for those candidates actually in Georgia. And you would think that if he maybe could take a step back and, and think beyond his own, um, selfishness for a moment that he would go, okay, well, at least what I can do is ensure that not everything we've done is going to go down the toilet by having the government or having the Dems control all three um, levels here, but he didn't really do that. He just kind of continued to have that temper tantrum. And so uh, it's like, what a, it's been a tumultuous four years and now it's ended in possibly the worst way you could think for the Republicans and and you have to add the asterisks is that they lost to a democratic party that is also deeply divided, right? They, there are some serious rifts in the democratic party, just as there were in 2016. And the RNC was just such a dumpster fire that they couldn't take advantage of it. And they lost completely the state of Georgia. Um, so I think there, there has to be, Hopefully there is an adult in the room. If you care about the Republican Party, hopefully there is an adult in the room who can say, okay, guys, that show is over. Now it's time to rebuild. We have to go in a different direction. Um, and we have to figure this out as soon as possible. Because the longer that this, whatever we call it, mega Trumpism, et cetera, the longer it festers, I think the longer it's just going to continue to just decay the, the ability of the RNC to look like a credible party. And to look like a credible party against a Democratic party that has some serious um, has some serious fissures that you can you can target and expose. And we saw the the RNC have some success in targeting those in places like South Florida, uh, but it's hard to do that when the whole conversation is just dominated by, um, as I think as Mitt Romney put it. Um, a selfish man's damaged pride. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. Wow, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Obviously, my daughter, not a big fan of Mitt Romney. Uh, that, that, would, that was a feature of Trump's speech, by the way, on... Uh, oh, God. Um, there is one thing that people will miss about Trump, and I will surely miss it, is his ability to be a showman and uh, to give speeches and just be incredibly entertaining on the on the campaign trail and a good reason is you know there's that video of Mitt Romney who was boarding his flight I think he was going from Utah to DC uh, maybe somewhere else I don't know Uh, but essentially the entire plane was calling him a traitor 
And then uh, Trump gives his speech. He goes, oh, you know, Mitt Romney. He's like, by the way, he shouldn't fly much anymore anyway, should he, huh? <laughs> yeah, this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Inserting that into his Did speech. Did you see the clip of the uh, woman who guy. confronted Mitt at the airport? Yeah. I thought that course. he handled that, handled that pretty well. Um, I mean, it's hard to yeah, take this is... someone in your face like that being like, you're a traitor, like you didn't support the president. I think he was pretty calm. Like, I was impressed. And I'm not a I'm not a huge Mitt Romney fan, um, but I did think that his demeanor there was was particularly solid given the circumstances. Uh, now, if she had harassed him when he got off the plane, I don't know if he would have been so nice. <laughs> After you have a whole whole well, jet of people calling you a traitor. <laughs> well, he did put a dog on the top of his car. No, but. <laughs> I mean, this guy's a multimillionaire, by the way. He has no reason to be flying, you know, with normal commercial aviation. This guy could have a private jet if he wanted to. Uh, he's trying to be a man of the people, everybody. <laughs> and this whole thing about confronting politicians, you know, maybe there's a richer history of this, um, but I really do think a lot of it sprung out of the, the Tea Party era where you had these town halls uh, after the health care votes. This is like going back to 2008, 2009. Uh, early 2010, and there was this huge confrontation with elected people, congressmen, and they were really put in the hot seat. And uh, that was kind of a, a moment. I mean, again, there's probably something having to do with the Vietnam War where this is a lot more clear. But that was a moment where a lot of these guys were, you know, were starting to have to deal with being interacted with in public. You know, yeah. this doesn't ha it didn't used to happen very no, often. It's a it's uh, a very but, British yeah. tradition to like go up to a politician and really like say negative things to them. Oi. Yeah. Yeah. Actually there are some really funny ones of like Boris Johnson where, where people, people have confronted him on the street, especially in the last campaign and basically said like all sorts of negative expletives that you're not allowed to say on the radio. Thanks to the folks at the FCC. Um, and he's just like, well, good lucky for you. I'm about to leave. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, just a rich tradition, but again, this confronting them and uh, not storming down the gates of the U.S. Capitol. Uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff that I think will continue to come out with that. We're following the news. I know that on, on the Twitters, which some of you might be on, some of you might not, but there is the invoke 25th Amendment now hashtag. Yep. Uh, I don't know if this is actually going to happen because Twitter is its own ecosphere, but yeah, not really sure. There's uh, a lot of stuff that's going to come out in the media David, if you're cool to transition, yep. I think I'm I'm ready. Uh, I've I've had my dose of uh, revolutionary fervor fulfilled for yes. the day. Yes, yeah, I, I think. Uh, I mean, I have I have one thing that I want to talk about: positive news from surprisingly of all states, the Mountain State of West Virginia. Uh, so I'm glad you brought this up, and just to let you know. I actually did invite a friend of Big Talker uh, to come on the program and discuss this, seeing as he is from West Virginia, Andrew Donaldson. Okay. Uh, he is um, a writer, editor, um, own magazine, everything else. He might be coming on next week, if that's cool, to discuss this a little bit more with Beautiful. you. But give us the lowdown. What's, what's, why are we celebrating coal country? Yeah, here? so West Virginia, a state that most people really don't have much familiarity um, for other than maybe the John Denver song, take me home country roads. Um, Obviously you're not a college football fan. Well, yeah, I, no, no, I have seen, they, they do throw a pretty good, pretty good tailgate 
in West West Virginia. I do know that they're kind of like the Bills Mafia of uh, of college football. Um, Mountaineers. So yeah, it's just quietly kind of keeping to themselves, and then all of a sudden. Um, as of January 1, the state had vaccinated or at least offered the vaccine to every single resident of the state living in a long-term care home. Um, and so every single person in a long-term care home, which are really like the ground zero for the virus and for deaths caused by the virus, here we have West Virginia um, vaccinating everyone who is who who are the most at risk um and wherever you're listening um the reason why that's interesting or the reason why that's important is because that trend holds true everywhere the people in long-term care homes are the most uh susceptible to severe cases and ultimately death from COVID, from the carol baskin virus and west virginia figured out a way to get them all vaccinated by about january 1st and so good for good for the state Incredible. Uh, for getting that done. Uh, I think that that should be a lesson really for um, for other states or provinces or even countries to look at how they actually did it. And we can get into that, how they actually did it, um, because it's that is pro- like priority one should be there. Um, and then I, I think as of as of yesterday would be um, they're now vaccinating teachers so their rollout is going so well that they're, they've actually moved down a category class and they're into vaccinating teachers now, um, which obviously allows for them to do a better job of reopening schools and things like that. And all of the positives that are associated from students actually being in person. And so, yeah, West Virginia um, seems to have figured it out. Yeah, and everything you're talking about, the long-term care homes, retirement homes, uh, this has really been disastrous, and it's certainly been disastrous uh, in Canada, my home province mm-hmm. of Quebec. Uh, actually, in my family, in the last two weeks, uh, we've had two serious hospitalizations and one death. Um, you know, this is mostly my my mom's elder family and cousins and things, uh, but they're all in long term care facilities and caught the virus and uh, were not able to make it. And uh, there's a lot of holding back of the vaccine. There's a lot of vaccine politics mm-hmm. in places like California and Oregon and even New Hampshire. There's talk of these race-based equity measurements um, really to figure out who will get the, the vaccine first. So essentially your skin color um, or your, you know, I don't know what, I guess your income level will determine whether or not you get it. Uh, it seems as if the worst is obviously in New York yeah. State with Andrew Cuomo who's even putting forth, you know, huge penalties if certain groups don't get it. And it's just, it's it's the worst of government that's being put in charge of something that has so far been so innovative and so quick, so market-based. And now it's th- put through the ringer of, of kind of race theory. And this looks to be pretty dangerous and actually could put a lot of lives at risk. Well, uh, yeah, and I mean, the ongoing debate in Canada right now is... For whatever reason, the the Trudeau government moved people, um, especially older people in prisons, up the line. And there's a good chance that most of the people who are incarcerated in prisons, especially if they're old, older than a certain age, will get vaccinated than people of a certain age outside in the general public. And there's all sorts of debate 
about whether or not that's fair or just. And I'm kind of like in the middle because yes, the people who are incarcerated are people too. Um, But at the same time, I'm also human and it does make me feel a little uncomfortable. The notion that um, like the example is the notion that Paul Bernardo, Canada's most famous serial killer um, could get the vaccine before a family member's grandma or grandpa or something along those lines that strikes at like a very kind of human um, emotion in terms of fairness. Um, Whereas if you were to actually distribute the vaccine at Shoppers Drug Mart or Pharmacy yeah. or something and everybody could pick it up for, you know, a small $10 fee, uh, that would probably be way more efficient. And I know there are a lot of regulations in, in the U.S., and I assume it's the same in Canada as to who can actually administer the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are only a few professions that are allowed to do it, and I'm sure that's also a, a huge problem well, for the, the bottle. Yeah, and it should be – so in terms of whoever should be able to give the vaccine – Anyone who is who is otherwise trained to give a needle or to take blood should be allowed to give the vaccine. And so what I mean by that is obviously there are people at these clinics, there are nurses, there are nurses who are in, uh, who are, let's say, uh, in other um, medical professions, there are dental hygienists or dentists. I mean, how many times have you had your teeth or your gums frozen to have a cavity filled. They are fully trained. Not too well, many. That's good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> good dental hygiene over there in the Asowski house household. Um, but think about all of the other people who are otherwise trained to give a needle. And this is actually part of West Virginia's success is that they partnered with pharmacies to actually do this. And the long story short is essentially each pharmacy had between two and four old folks homes that they were responsible for vaccinating. And the state said, okay, we, we have an ambitious goal of 30 days. Can you get it done in 30 days? And they got it done in two weeks. They, they, they've completed 214 old, uh, old folks homes or long-term, long-term care homes in, in two weeks. And so um, it's clear that whatever the, I mean, this is really what the pandemic has, has highlighted Um across all areas, not just medicine, but all areas of the economy. There are all sorts of, there are all sorts of silly rules that impede progress and impede progress in a way that doesn't make anyone more safe. And what's so irritating about this is that the end of the pandemic is essentially on the horizon. We can see it, um, especially when we compare ourselves to other countries like Israel, who is, I think, past the 18% mark now uh, in terms of... They're at 17.14 as of two days ago. Yeah, so they're about to... uh, like There is a chance that Israel could hit the 50% mark before the United States hits the 10% mark and before Canada hits the 3% mark. Um, And so we have to be looking at how other jurisdictions are doing this and realize what works and just immediately change course if that's what's if that is what the evidence suggests and the Israelis have figured it out and they got a better way or the West Virginians have it figured out and they have a better way well let's maybe pocket our pride for a few minutes and start saving some lives 
True, very true. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Our website is consumerchoiceradio.com. Uh, looking at the vaccination chart here, uh, the top countries, we have Israel that has already vaccinated 17% of its population, the United Arab Emirates at 8 Bahrain at 4 Scotland, I don't know why they're in there, Scotland 1.69 uh, Northern Ireland, United States, 1.6. And it is just ahead of Iceland, England, and the entire United Kingdom. Uh, so a lot of movement on that list. And hopefully some innovations can be put into place. I know there's there's a lot of people who are criticizing Florida in the last week. Uh, but Florida's doing it in a very decentralized way. They're empowering hospitals to do so. And they're really trying to move it to pharmacies. But there's a lot of federal regulations they need to go over right now and uh, definitely a lot of different legal concerns uh, that will not allow that to be distributed Uh, here in austria we're very very slow Uh, i think it's like 0.07 percent of the population that has so far been vaccinated they've been holding back a lot and this is uh, sort of more of a scandal in the united kingdom they're holding back on vaccinations until they have enough doses to give the the double dose because uh, these vaccines, as far as I understand, you get one vo- uh, one dose and then you get the second dose about a month yeah. later. Uh, so they're waiting till they can get all of those doses to really begin the, the huge yeah, process. So on that note, I mean, I'm not a medical professional or an epidemiologist or someone who works in a field even remotely close to that. However, I do know that the first dose of the vaccine depending on which one, let's say, gives you between 50, 45 to 60% immunity. Um, that's better than the flu shot. And we only get one of those. And so I would be probably in the camp of those who say, well, yes, you want people to have both doses, but it would be better to give everyone one dose than to wait to be able to give half the population two doses. Because the the and here we go back to the idea of herd immunity. Um, Once you get everyone to, if you had the entire population at 55 or 60% um, immunity to the virus, realistically, you could probably go back to life as normal at that point. Um, And then once you have your second dose a month later for everybody, then the pandemic is essentially over. Um, and, and we've beaten it. Yeah. And this is the same pipeline that we've seen with basically anything is you have innovation here on the left, markets working, competition, great ideas, science progress, and then it has to make its way through some kind of governmental regulation, bureaucracy, and it all goes to unfortunate. Uh, there's, yeah. So hopefully some of these other nations will learn the better lessons of West Virginia, as you mentioned. And uh, we'll be talking with Andrew Donaldson next week. Uh, he is the purveyor of the hashtag Twitter Supper Club, if uh, you guys are well aware. He's, a, he's actually someone who focuses on a lot of positive stuff, so we'll definitely talk about that and uh, some of the other topics that he covers next week. Uh, David, if you're cool for another transition, I've got sure. a, an evergreen clip. Now, this has to do with poverty, op- entrepreneurship, um, foreign aid, and much more. And this is a clip by the late Anthony Bourdain. Let's hear it. All right, so let's go with this. We're well aware of the fact that we are often shooting in countries that are very poor, 
where there are a lot of people standing around who haven't worked in many years, if ever, who are really, really hungry. Um, and our cameras alone represent, you know, a year's income, more, you know, more money than they could ever imagine. I'm there talking about local cuisine, okay, and I'm that means I'm shoveling food into my face in front of people that a lot of the, those people can't afford. Um, how, how do you deal with that? What do you do? Um, the person feeding you, obviously you remunerate them for their, for their efforts, for their food, for their labor, for whatever. We take care of them. But what about the, the people who are standing there who are hungry? And the, I think the human, you know, in, the, the immediate human inclination when you see hungry kids is, I will feed those kids. So I finish this, my soup, and I say, well, well let's buy out the place. We'll feed all, let's, you know, feed all of these kids. Just what we did in Haiti. And as happens, things spin immediately out of control. The bigger kids shove the smaller kids out of the way. The grown-ups who were just as hungry come in and shove the big kids out of the way, and pretty soon you have a riot. And then you have someone stepping in to, to, to try to maintain order, would be beating kids with a stick. And when this is what this, you know, a, a, a simple, maybe foolhardy, naive desire to take care of an immediate problem, hungry kids, led to unintended and very ugly consequences, you know, people beating other people. So, David, I listened to this clip. It was sent to me by... A friend of mine, I guess I had been trending somewhere, and I thought it was really interesting because it speaks to a lot of the issues that certainly we cover and, you know, how do you solve problems? You know, it's not by Anthony Bourdain swooping in and just buying everybody a meal. You know, there have to be incentives in place, and I thought this was just really uh, kind of a remarkable clip and a good micro example of how maybe foreign aid works or how, how certain things work. I don't know. What is, yeah. what is your kind of response to the I, Bourdain I, clip? I like it. I think Bourdain is one of those people who you sit back and you're like, oh, I wish that he was here because I would love to know what he would have to say about all of this. I mean, obviously, the, the impact the virus has had on the, the food service industry and restaurants and New York City um there's a there's a small group of people from across the political spectrum i throw christopher hitchens in there as well bourdain um and a few others who i'm like oh i wish that they were here um because i want to know what they would have thought and i would have loved to hear how they would have said it um so i i always found bourdain as an interesting uh character in that sense because um he always had so much to i mean very few people get to travel the got to travel the world in the way that he did um and he kind of really celebrated the interconnectedness of um of everyone in that way and i know that's pretty fluffy stuff to say but um it, it yeah uh what do i what's my take on his take yeah i think it's i think it's one of those um one of those instances those micro examples of how solutions to problems are often uh, more systemic and more uh, nuanced than, oh, well, I can just buy everybody here food. I can buy out this restaurant and give everybody food. Um, so yeah, I think that certainly draws a, a few important parallels to other uh, issues that other issues of the day.
Yeah, and it, you know, we were thinking about this, um, you know, not just in the context of what's happening with the aftermath of the Carol Baskins virus and the shutdowns, but also, you know, how are these stimulus programs and projects uh, going to be passed? And, you know, if all of a sudden we're offering influxes of money to people and, uh, you know, it's a different context because we're talking about a pandemic and not being able to work legally, um, but also it works for many of these countries and a lot of the solutions that we need have to be endogenous. They can't be exogenous. They can't always be just coming from the outside. You know, we can't hope that Elon Musk is going to mine some asteroid and uh, all of a sudden, you know, there's a hundred trillion dollars more for the entire world. You know, it's going to have to come from within. Yep. And that's why I'm, I'm really liking a lot of uh, things that are, people are doing online to try to help each other out. A good example is uh, Barstool Sports. Dave Portnoy, mm-hmm. they've, they've raised something to the tune of $20 million from private individuals to give to restaurants that are struggling right now, which is like a, a beautiful thing. And it worked faster, and they did it in, I think it's only been a couple of weeks, a month maximum, and they've been able to raise this and get the money out to people incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, and I did fib on uh, the last um I think it was the last show that we did before the end of the year. I thought I got my IRS stimulus check. I actually didn't. It was just a, a letter telling me to update my info. Oh. So I, has, I I still haven't gotten my stimulus check. Millions of others still haven't gotten it. And this was passed like way back in April, May. Uh, Barstool Sports turns around, and within three weeks, they're able to get money to restaurants that need it now. Yep. Uh, I think that was really great and, and creative energy. And uh, there's just a lot of people who want to help. And there are ways to do so, which I think is awesome. Yeah, and it's funny. It's it's the people you know, don't necessarily expect um, who rise to the occasion. I mean, Dave Portnoy is quite the character um, who you wouldn't necessarily pick right off the bat to be someone who swoops in to help save uh, to save small businesses. But there we are. He's getting a lot of very wealthy people to put their money where their mouth is. And I think what's interesting, so critics will say, oh yeah, but they've only helped, let's say 50 or a hundred businesses or however many it is. Obviously it's, it's a drop in the bucket in comparison to, um, to the sheer volume of businesses that, that need assistance. However, what is important is it's the, the, the magnitude of the efficiency which I think is the real story. It's being able to, in a matter of weeks, generate enough private sector dollars to help businesses and to help them in like a 24-hour turnaround, something that the government seems incapable of doing. Um, And so it's the efficiency that really draws my eye um, is that they're just able to go from X to Y uh, so quickly in a way that are we, I mean, how many people, whether you're in Canada or Europe or the United States, how many businesses have been kind of left um, being forced to shut down, being kind of waiting for support? Is it coming? Is it going to be enough? How do I apply for it? Am I going to qualify? All of those questions. Um, the, the efficiency here in something like the Barstool Fund shows that there is a better way um, now we just have to figure out, can we get, can we scale up private efforts enough to have more of an impact or can we radically change the government program for assistance so that it mirrors what folks like Dave Portnoy are able to do? 
Yeah, and I'm just looking on the website here, and they've got already, geez, at least 35 to 40 bars and restaurants. Gee, actually, I'm wrong. I think they have up to upwards of 60 to 70 uh, that they've yeah. already helped. And that's, it's just, it's incredible. And obviously, the, the greatest uh, help that these businesses can have is by being open, being allowed to serve customers. Uh, at least where I'm sitting here in Austria, we're still under lockdown for at least the next two and a half yeah. weeks which does not well bode well, but they do tell us that they will open up the restaurants and bars again, which is good to hear, though we did uh, unfortunately miss the Christmas markets. Those did not happen, uh, which is, again, very unfortunate. But so it goes, David. There's uh, a lot of stuff that we'll be working on here in the next couple of weeks. I know, David, you're starting up a couple of projects, going to get your your fingers typing and very busy. Uh, it's great to be back at the mic. I think, um, you know, crazy start to the new year, uh, barnstorming yeah. through the yeah. Capitol building. Actually, I do have, not what we I do have one funny yep. note on that is, so all of these protesters turned rioters, turned criminals, um, <laughs> who stormed the Capitol, there are now thousands and thousands of images of these people after storming the Capitol and destroying property and things like that. And all of these people, because of their refusal to wear a mask in a group setting are easily identifiable. And the FBI is surely going to be knocking on their door now because there are hundreds of pictures of them literally in the act of, of violating whatever uh, laws applied and the sweet irony is, is that their refusal to wear a mask in a group setting is ultimately going to lead to them being identified and arrested. <laughs> yeah, and there are actually a couple live streamers that I, that I was following too that were like, oh, you know, we're in this person's Senate office or this person's House office. It's like, guys, if I'm watching you on this stream right now, imagine how how easy it will be for law enforcement to be doing the very, the very uh, yeah. same uh, in just a couple of hours. So d definitely idiotic on, on your part. I mean, look, this is not like, and, and, you know, we want to have this kind of criminal activity prosecuted. I mean, look, you just can't do this. Oh, yeah. If we say it's okay now, then any small, you know, quibble that is brought up having to do with the federal government, it's an invitation that anyone can just storm the Capitol, go in, you know, pose for pictures, take a lectern, uh, you know, try try to give a bad speech on the floor. Yeah. Come on, we got enough of that, guys. Yeah, there are enough bad speeches. Actually, what was interesting was to see, and this is a just a quick pivot. It was interesting to see um, as they were doing their votes, some of the senators or Congress uh, men and women were given time to um, <laughs> were given time to address the floor. Um, and several of them went, well, my remarks were written before today. And you just watch them like stumble as they try to <laughs> try to explain their position, given that their pre-written notes were no longer uh, no longer uh, representative of the situation at hand. And I just thought it was ironic in terms of bad speeches. Um, a couple of them stuck out to me where it was like, ooh, this guy clearly is not good on his feet. And uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> this, is, this is not great. Yeah, I think it was Louis Gomer, who was one of the last congressmen who spoke. You know, he just looked totally defeated in that, you know, mask. You can only see his little beady eyes, <laughs> but just looked totally defeated. And, uh, you know, when he's 
he's basically having to talk to Pence, you know, who's up at the, the speaker's mic and saying, uh, oh, we have this letter. And they're like, well, has it been signed by a senator? And he looks around and he goes, mm, the senator has withdrawn. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was over. That's yeah. how it ends, everybody. Yeah. It ends with uh, an abandonment uh, right there at the lectern, speaker's mic, uh, and uh, Mike Pence calling the shot and saying that the election is over and Joe Biden will be president uh, just here in two weeks. Yes. And who knows? Maybe Pence will be president uh, by the end of the week or maybe next week. Who knows at this point, guys? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I I feel bad. I would feel if that happens, I'd feel bad for everyone who has uh, who has already created Bi- Biden forty six gear because then he would be bumped to forty seven. <laughs> wow, I didn't even think about that. A, okay, a whole a whole, <laughs> uh, a whole product line of swag would be made obsolete in the in a matter of two weeks because he would not be the 46th president of the united states he would be the i guess do i have those numbers right i don't even know if i have those numbers right but um what well yeah he'd be 46 no but here's the good thing david is that we're dealing with private industry they're the guys who you know make the t-shirts and caps and posters i'm pretty sure they'd be able to rebound pretty quickly i I bet you someone someone's already got 25th amendment biden 40 47 shirts already made (laughs) well let's go and register biden47.com real quick and make sure that that could be a good money maker that could be a good money maker very true very true all right david it's been a been a pleasure to reconnect uh amazing 2021 uh, for the rest of you, if you've been listening along for the hour, thanks so much. Uh, it was a pleasure. Yael Osowski signing off. Yeah, thank you again for listening, those uh, on the radio and uh, those listening uh, online. Hopefully we will have a, a couple big announcements uh, coming up in terms of our show and expansion. Um, nothing yet to announce, but uh, fingers crossed in the coming weeks we will uh, have some exciting news. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, thanks again. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountain, Shenandoah River. Life is old there, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze, country roads, take me home. Drops in my eyes, country road.